Well, g'day everyone and welcome. This is Life in the Peloton and I'm your host, Mitch Stocker, and the Life in the Peloton podcast is being brought to you by our partners, MAP. MAP have been propelling cycling forward since 2014. Their founders come from different disciplines and industries, graphic design, fashion, technical apparel design, but they are all bound by their love for the sport because simply riding bikes makes everything better. Grassroots to World Tour, that's what we're doing this week. It's the story of the young, hugely successful World Tour pro, Luke Plapp. As you may have heard late last year, I caught up with him just before Christmas as a recorder talking Luft, a little sneak peek, but now I've sat down and we've got the full Plappy story. Both Plappy and I have come through the infamous Brunswick Cycling Club, a club that I'm back at today watching my son starting his love for cycling down there racing at the track. But I want to know, how did Luke find the club? How did he end up at Brunswick Cycling Club when in Australia, cycling is far from your number one sport? In this episode, we're going to explore his time at the club, the impacts it had on him, and then making his way through the ranks before making that step across to Europe. Luke has come off a little bit of a bittersweet start to the Australian summer and pretty much his whole season because he went out to take the Australian Road Championships for the third time in a row. It's only ever been achieved once before by John Tavaro, but he only won it three times, not in a row, something that Plappy has now achieved. Then he was going across to Adelaide as a bit of an outside favourite to win Tour Down Under. That's what I was thinking. But he crashed heavily, which forced him out of the race. But in true Plappy style, we saw him have the ability to overcome his obstacles, rebuild and understand his weaknesses and work through them. You're going to hear about this and how valuable a trait this is to him. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. It's just one scoop mixed with water. I like to throw a little bit of ice in too, once a day, every day. It makes me feel really good. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and lots more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also really simple. Whether I'm out riding, training, bikepacking, or just working from home on the computer, I start my day the same with AG1. I really like the simple routine it gives me. I'm generally up pretty early at about 5.30 and I hit AG1 and get into my day. I might have a quick coffee at some point during the morning, but what I'm noticing is I'm not feeling like I need to have something to eat straight away first thing. AG1 allows me to slow things down and not only give my body a chance to absorb those nutrients that AG1 provides me, but it also gives me a chance to reset and get ready for the day ahead. I feel much better throughout the day when I start my day like this, my overall energy levels and my well-being. If there's one product I recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership in your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. That's drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. Just before we get to this episode, last week we dropped it, our first Life in the Peloton race communique episode with special guest hosts Tom Southam and Luke Durbridge. This is a new series we started last year where once a month we're wrapping up what has happened in World Tour Cycling. The best bit is Luke Durbridge is a current pro in the World Tour riding for Jaco Alula and Tom Southam is a director sportive in the race car with EF Easy Post. So you don't get much closer to inside view that what's going on in the peloton than that. Check it out. That was our episode last week, the race communique. 
Life in the Peloton merch is available now and shipping internationally. The merch is being produced here in Australia. Have a look at lifeinthepeloton.com and check out the range before it sells out. Guys, this is a really great episode. Plappy is such a great bloke and a lovable personality. You will struggle to find someone who doesn't love this guy. Sit back and enjoy. I bring you Luke Plapp. Luke Plapp, Plappy, Malis, set the scene. Where are we? We're in the Brunswick Club Rooms, where it started for both of us. Yeah, this is where I came down on a Thursday night, actually. I didn't start at the clinic. I started on a Thursday night uh, at a roller session at the club rooms that used to be oh, probably 200 metres to our left and right. Yeah, with Cam McFarlane and Dave. From there, I went to the Sunday clinic. Well, yeah, we're sitting right here. We can see the track. We're seeing the new club rooms. They're probably about, I don't know, 10 years old now. But um, yeah, this is where it all began for both of us. I guess, Plappy, let's go right back to the beginning because you're a World Tour pro now. You've, uh, you've made this, the step. You've lived the dream, as you could say. Why cycling? Why did you end up down here at the Brunswick track of all places? Originally, it was for fitness, for footy and cricket. Oh. They're probably my two loves uh, and still are. I think I just was hooked by the Olympics. The, mm. That was what... Which I grew Olympics? up watching uh, Beijing was like the one oh. I can properly remember. Actually, like watching Stephanie Rice or Magnus and the Swimmers was what actually drew me into it. It was funny. As soon as I finished uh, Tokyo, I was like, I want a tat. So, I got the tat just because that's what you see the swimmers have. The tattoo. Um, yeah. So, I got the ring straight away. But well, completely down your back. Your whole, <laughs> you get a whole back yeah, job yeah, done. Whole back like Lee <laughs> Howard's <laughs> tattoo. No. Yes, yeah, so it wanted to be an Olympic sport. So, mm. it just happened to be that I was doing cycling for fitness and, yeah, sort of transitioned from there. Because I know you're a good cricketer. Well, so I heard you're a good cricketer. I'm, I'm back playing cricket these days, back behind the stumps, loving it. Cricket's not an Olympic sport, but you, you weren't drawn to that, even though it was like a school sport, you're pretty good at it. Like you said, footy, you came down here just to do the fitness. That was purely like, okay, I'm going to do fitness, but it actually what? It, it, it attracted you. What attracted you about it? Yeah, I think, well, I was never going to be good enough at footy and cricket, but I think just the- Why? I loved it, but it was just, I went to a sports school and all my mates were always playing for Victoria or that just that level of love. Mm. But I also probably didn't realize how much of a team atmosphere or culture cycling mm. was. So, I love that part of it. But I love that usually whoever works the hardest gets the results. And I think that's, that's a pretty awesome aspect of the sport compared to, uh, yeah, I guess footy and cricket where it can be a bit of natural talent or a bit of things out of your control. Yeah, with the team, like you said, you know, sometimes, especially during that period when you're at at high school, whatever, you get guys who just, you know, can't be bothered or whatever. They rock up. Oh, who cares about this game? You're like, oh, I've actually prepared for this. And with cycling, I had the same thing for me. I found a sport where the work I put in, the results showed. And I was like, oh, this is, this is awesome. But weirdly, once you go to the, the pro ranks, it becomes a team sport again. So, you can sort of get the best of both worlds, don't you? Yeah, you do. It's, uh, I think that's sort of why I love my time trailing because that's, that's on you. You can control that. Uh, and then, yeah, like you said, in the team ranks, it's, I don't know, you just get a, you get a really good satisfaction out of helping your teammates win or, or being part of that journey. And that's something that I really enjoy, um, whether that's in the lead outs or trying to do a burner up the climb. Like I love mm. almost every aspect of it. Well, let's talk about this club because it's very pinnacle for, for both of us, as you say. And I think maybe even more so for you, you know, for me, I came through and very quickly, you know, I, I was here for a while and very quickly, it sort of felt like my time at Brunswick was, was over for a period i'm back here now with my son but from what i understand you came through and like you said you came here on a thursday night so you missed the infamous 
junior clinic that runs on a Sunday morning where I started, sort of just for any amateur kid to get down here. You can start at five years old right up till you're about 16 years old. I think I even was here at 16 right at the tail end of it. And just come and just with your runners on, whatever you want, great atmosphere. I'm loving it on the other side of the fence now, watching my son ride around. You missed that. So you came on a Thursday night, a different sort of crew. Tell me what it was like when you arrived on that, say, that Thursday night, the first time here. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different crew to the Sundays. Um, I think I remember just the barbecue fired up, everyone having snacks. Mm. I definitely could only do the first session, the 35k an hour session. So mm. I was hanging on for dear life there. Um, and yeah, I just loved it. I think because you've got the older guys there on a Thursday night, you had those people to aspire to or look mm. up to. Um, I'm not sure if you know James Payne, the Payne family. Mm. So they were James and his sister Emma. They were two that I sort of looked up to. And then from there, sort of you heard about those Northern Combines on a Saturday. So yeah, we came down Thursdays. Um, and worked my way through the hours um, and eventually oh, after probably three years of trying I did the hour of power and was like that last one standing with Cam which was my favorite session of the week um, and then yeah from there we sort of went to the Tuesday night racing mm. at DISC with Brunswick the Northern Combines um, and sort of for yeah a good three four five years just did the old the Tuesday Thursday Saturday sessions for training and that was all I did really. So you came down here and, and Cam McFarlane, as you spoke about, I want to speak about him in a minute. He's infamous to this club. He's down here on a, on a posty bike. He's a postman. He, he was bringing his posty bike up every Thursday, uh, every Tuesday night to do the trainings. And then he decided he got a second one, didn't he? And he, he left it here. He, he rides around. He does, what does he do? 300 laps every yeah, week? It works out to be 110K if you do every lap for three hours. <laughs> and he comes down and he does the three sessions, three different speeds. I guess I just want to understand what it was like when you first got here, like you said, cricket and football, you see these guys going around on a track bike. Are you from a cycling family? No, not at all. So were you thinking like, what the hell is this? Yeah, it was, it was really foreign. Um, I remember crying the first time I went to disc <laughs> about the banks, like just absolutely shitting myself about how steep it was. Cam, that was when Cam used to go to Tuesday nights. Okay. He used to do the racing and he used to hold my, he held my hand for a whole lap. While we were on the duckboard and the duckboard scared me. Yeah. And then we eventually got onto the track. But yeah, I think it was just a, it was just a completely different vibe to what you get from mm. your cricket and footy. And for some reason it attracted me um, and I haven't looked back ever since. And I, I really love it. I come back here as much as I can. Uh, I still love doing the Thursday nights. Uh, it's sort of evolved now and I go on my TT bike on the other side of the track and try time trial cam for a couple of hours. But yeah, I love it. I think no matter what skill level you are, it, it's super inviting here and you get along with everyone. Yeah, what is that culture? Well, can you sort of put it into place? Because from what I understand, I had a chat to Cam a little bit about that time because I was overseas. He said, look, when Plappy came here, he was really attracted to it. But there was a period once you started racing around under-17s, you drifted away from the club a little bit. You went and did your own thing. You explored the world. You started training with some other guys in your area. And then all of a sudden, you re-emerged. You came back. Tell me a little bit about that period when you first found the love here and then you sort of found the love, I guess, for cycling, explored the world. What drew you back? I really struggled as a junior. I never made one of those state teams or never went to nationals. So I think I just sort of naturally drifted away from it just because oh, you weren't doing well or I was always getting my ass handed to me or racing a B grade, mm. like little junior race. Um, and then, yes, I sort of went and did my own thing, did a little bit of cycling, did a bit of other team sports. Uh, and then, yeah, at one stage, a flick, uh, switch just flicked and I really wanted to give it a, a proper crack. Uh, like I've got to get back. I've yeah. got to get back to the track. I'm and we missing came something. Came back to Thursday, so yeah. that was we came Thursday back to night. where it started. Yeah. What I loved, and I think 
since then, it's, it's still now in my career. Motor pacing is my favorite thing. And I think it's from a Thursday night with Cam. And we drew up on that whiteboard behind us a, a plan. I think it was 12 weeks from one Thursday night to the National TT. Cool. And we drew up a plan and it all involved, we started with every session that I loved and it was all motor pacing with Cam. I'd go to Wednesday nights at his house and do motor pacing up the Great Ocean Road, here Thursdays, race Saturdays. So we sort of worked out that plan. Um, and it was the first time, I guess, footy and cricket, you have your Tuesday, Thursday training sessions, have a game on Saturday. But it was the first time where every day I woke up, I had mm. a bit of structure. And I think that's what I loved and it still is. I love the structure that this sport gives you. From that plan we made, we set out and it, it all came together on the day and that sort of kicked off my career to where I am now. Well, tell me about the people who were down here because I understand Ruby Roseman Gannon, she was down here. Graham Frizzle, they were down here. The families were sort of getting together. Tell me about that little bit of culture on the outside because you know there's that healthy competition in cycling as well. You still want to race each other. You still want to push each other. But the feeling I get when I come back to Brunswick too and the feeling I had and I, the memories I have was it was quite supportive. You know, if you didn't have the right equipment or the right kit, someone would lend a hand to help you out or give you a bit of a tactical advice or whatever. Tell me about, and Cam speaks about it, it was a bit of a golden era. He goes, this, this period that you guys came through was this, this golden era for the club at that point. Yeah, it really was. I think uh, I came back here a couple of weeks ago after being away for the whole year and it just, just didn't feel the same to what I was used to. Um, I think we were really lucky with the age group that we had coming through with the juniors, but also the older guys to look up to. Like I remember maybe I was 15 or 16. I used to follow Loretta Hansen mm. around the track and she'd take as many laps as she can. And I'm just holding on and she's trying to look after me. So I think we had, yeah, like you said, myself, Ruby, Graham, Nathan Boff, mm. the Boffs. Um, <laughs> so we had a really good core group of young guys, but we had those Loretta's and those older people to look up to, Nathan Elliott. Mm. So it was, yeah, I think we just had that really good group of young, passionate people who wanted to go somewhere in the sport. But at the same time, you had those older guys there to inspire them and to look up to, which I think maybe we don't have the older guys to inspire at the moment for the young guys. What was happening off the track? Were you guys sort of hanging out together with the families? Like, were your parents enjoying it? It was a bit of a hassle to come down here. Oh, he wants to go back to Brunswick again, you know, and do this. What was the feeling like? And what were you sort of telling your friends at school? Like, mate, what are you doing? That's weird cycling sport. It was definitely a, I think it was like a mother's group for all the parents. Like they loved it. They'd come in and chat. <laughs> well, that helps, doesn't it? Yeah, they it does. want to come. They yeah. were, they've, and mum still catches up with all the juniors that don't race anymore, but she'll still catch up for lunch or dinner with them now. So the parents really loved it. We used to ride as hard as we could, come and have a sausage, always got those bag of lollies. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at school, it almost didn't mention it. Like it was such a foreign sport that they yeah. almost didn't think existed. It was like, nah, I still love my footy and cricket. I don't know. It's just not a sport that I guess people, kids at school really look up to. I think that's, oh, that's cool. I might get involved in it. I was definitely a one-off there. Well, fast forward, I'll come back to it now, but I want to actually know what, is, what are the, those friends now think of it? Because that's happened to me. I came back you know, after a certain period and then all these guys who, I wouldn't say bagged me at school, but they just didn't really quite mm. get it. And you sort of hit it and you, know, you, you that guy, you know, shaves his legs and wears that tight clothing and all that stuff. And all of a sudden they got into cycling. Like, I mean, five ten years later and they're like hey can we go out for a ride now i was like god having the tables turned now what's happened with you yeah it's similar it's uh this year i had all my school <laughs> friends because of covid they haven't been out of travel they all actually came to europe this year cool and a few of them came to girona and like hung out for a week stayed a couple of nights and yeah it's it's interesting now and i think maybe after the olympics they sort of saw that on tv and realized it's a proper sport <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it's been really awesome i guess you've almost got your mate support now and they see yeah. what you're doing um it was really really cool having them in europe and 
just felt like old times, like you just ride into a coffee shop or seeing them. Uh, a lot of them are, are playing footy or cricket, like a lot of them are in the AFL. Oh, cool. Uh, a couple of them play cricket for Victoria. But yeah, I, I guess that's, we've grown out of that school phase mm. and we're all like appreciative of what we all are doing. But yeah, it was great to have everyone in Europe last year and I guess they got to see the different life I live to Australia. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, let's talk about this progression because I think it was really cool. Cam ran me through this and like fast forward, rewind back to 2017 and under-19, from what I understand, you correct me if I'm wrong, you have your first state road title, you know, your first real major win at under-19 level. And you go on from there, you go straight to the Oceanas and you had a big hopes. This is that thing you wrote on the whiteboard. 2018. 2018, 2018 yeah. sorry. You go to the Oceanas. You have it written on the whiteboard. This is the event you want to go for. You're coming into the finish line and you break your chain. Run me through that and run me through that sort of that feeling like, okay, I, I win the state champs. Like I know it sounds like absolutely nothing now, but at the time, your first big win, that feeling like, I think I can get a handle of this, this goal. I'm setting this goal, the Oshis. How did that all sort of feel and that training, like you said, getting up every day with a purpose? Yeah, I think from nationals, it's so early in the year when it, when that goes well, everything else you believe you mm-hmm. can achieve it. And States was awesome. But yeah, Oshies was, I mean, you always go to Canberra. It's that Canberra Junior Tour. It's always freezing cold. Um, but yeah, that was that one goal that I think I set because at the time you think Junior Worlds is the biggest thing in the world. And I was like, you do well at Oshies, you're going to Junior Worlds. So that was uh, the massive target for me. And it, it was going really well. And then, yeah, it finished on this maybe 250 meter climb uh, in the TT. And yeah, the changes snapped and I had to run to the finish line and then the next day i crashed along the people from australia might know the three sisters bridge in canberra almost fell off it and broke my collarbone and yeah that was that for oceanas yeah i think it's just all part of it as a junior and you quickly realize after a year that junior worlds wasn't as big as what you made it out to be what was happening at that moment when you broke the chain like i can imagine it was sort of being like that feeling we've seen in the tour de france with the you know the riders pick their bikes up and they throw them over the fence or even you, know, you see young guys now, they think, like you said, the junior worlds of the Oceanas at that moment is the biggest thing in the world. How do you handle that? Uh, I was lucky I could see the finish. So I just ran to it and crossed the line. Uh, but I did, as soon as we crossed the line, I sat down in the gutter, probably in tears. Dad came over to me. I thought the world was ending. I think there's a photo of me and my dad in Ugg boots and me just crying on the side of the fence, <laughs> um, just dwelling over what could have been. Uh, but no, I think times like that uh, is just what's made it so valuable and why I appreciate the sport so much. And when it does go well, you do love it even that much more. So the same year, you head across to the Junior Worlds, track and road, and you spend some time in Girona. Your first chance to really feel this, this whole feeling of what the pro world's like. At the time, I was in contact with you. I was actually in contact with Cam. He said, oh, look, we got Luke coming over. I said, oh, I'm actually at the Vuelta. I'll put you in touch with a friend of mine, Luke Durbridge. And so you hung out with Luke Durbridge that week. Tell me a little bit of light about what that was like. So you know, like you said, you've set this bar like the Junior Worlds. I remember when I went to the Junior Worlds, my life was going to end if I didn't get in there, you know? And I went across there and I've got another whole story to tell about that. But it's a big deal. And you realize later on it's a small thing. But I think it's quite good in the progression because you need these big goals to try and get there. But you go into the pro world, you've just come off the, the track worlds and you're about to go to the road worlds. You've got this time in Girona, you're thinking, oh, I'm, like, I'm a big deal. You know, I've, I've come away with a couple of world championships. Everyone's going to be coming up, patting my back. I don't know what happened when you arrived in Girona and you started training with the pros. So I first arrived and lived with Jimmy Whelan for three weeks. Yeah, from there, I forget the race, but all the Green Edge boys were training for a triple T. Right. 
Uh, and I was training for the TT, solely the TT at Junior Worlds. So Durbo said, well, look, you can come and do some Triple T training. They were oh. going out to Amir. And I was yeah, like, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, I'll come to Amir. Quickly realized that Amir is a climb and don't know why, but they were doing efforts up Amir Triple T. What did it feel like getting invited to go out and do that? Oh, I was, I was buzzing. It was the greatest feeling ever. Were I you was, nervous? You're like, oh, I've got to be right. Yeah. I probably had aero socks, skin suit, everything <laughs> on. Yeah, it was amazing. And I think it's because these are the guys you, well, as a 17 year old, you idolize, you look up to. And all of a sudden, you get a text from Durbo saying, oh, do you want to come out training? Uh, Imps was there as well. And those two were the two that sort of took me under their wing um, and still do, which is really cool. Daryl Impey, yeah. Yeah. So, no, it was really special. We did uh, TT training. I remember I, I must have just done my own efforts while they were doing theirs up Amir. And then we all came back from Amir to Drona um, along the valley and we started chopping off. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, that was a good effort. Like, it must be close to getting home soon. Mm. And we turned right all of a sudden. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and Durbo's like, oh, do you want a beer? I was like, oh, I'm a bit young. <laughs> I think I was 17 at the time. And they pulled up into a brewery and we stayed there for about two hours just chatting. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that, yeah, that was my introduction to the pro world. And like, I guess the best thing about that is, yeah, okay, it was nice that they had a beer. It was in the end of the year and that was probably their last session. Who knows? But I love that they sort of just included you in. And I don't know, I could be wrong here, but maybe they put the junior worlds in the place that it needed to be. You know, I think you come back to your own world here in Melbourne and no one knows any difference. No one knows what's bigger or whatever. And you probably get a big head out of it. Did you feel like you would have wanted more sort of, you know, pats on the back for the job you'd done or whatever? Or how did it feel the way the guys were sort of treating you? Were you like, okay, well, the junior worlds are just the junior worlds, I guess. Yeah, they sort of did. It's, that's your own thing. They were supporting me with doing that. But it was also like, well, this is the real job. This is mm. what you get paid to do. But it really gave me a taste for it. And ever since those three weeks in Girona with Derbs, uh, it was, that was where I always dreamed of going back to. Cool. Like from Junior Worlds, I was like, all right, I want to be a pro now. Hmm. And then you work towards that. And as soon as that was able to happen, I was like, oh, I want to go to Girona. Just because that was what I was used to. It's what I loved. Um, I really enjoyed those three weeks. Uh, I was with Macy Stewart there as well and her boyfriend at the time, Ryan Mullen, and just got to experience a lot of different pros and the way they live. Uh, and I loved it. And I still do. What were some of the things that stood out to you at that point that you can remember? because probably it's blurred now because you're living there, that you're like, cool, I love that. I love the way they do it. I love the way they can balance their life and professionalism. I don't know. What are some of the things that you, with fresh eyes, stood out to you that go, that's what I want to do? I think it was more everyone in that space was there for their job and everyone was, uh, was there to do a job uh, and wanting to get the best out of themselves. I think now it's a lot more commercialized, Girona. Mm. There's a lot more people there, a lot more non-pros. I think that's the biggest difference I can see. But yeah, I still love it. I still think the balance is there. You can go out for a beautiful dinner, a coffee, a beer. Uh, you can do whatever you want, but still at some of the best training grounds you can have. Mm. Let's move on now to sort of the way you sort of came across the Girona. Um, I guess you're moving into the pro ranks. You got a really good opportunity when that, during that COVID time, they decided to do this sort of um, festival of cycling. And you got the chance to ride in support of a real pro you know there's one thing training with them but suddenly you go into a race scenario and you're riding with one of the best in australia richie port tell me what that was like over at tdu riding with richie and it was sort of what you were thinking and how that all came about yeah it was crazy i think richie was one of those people that you knew of him but it was mm. almost like he was an untouchable where they're like derbs and imps and those boys you're like or more matey and you could always get to know him or reach out to him where i think richie was that next level you're almost scared to talk to or reach out to him was he scary? Yeah, he probably still is definitely <laughs> really scary, to be honest. <laughs> I'm on his good side, so that's, uh, that's the side you want to stay on. But no, nah, it was amazing also having Jimmy Whelan on the team. 
So, to be able to ride with those guys, we were just four big fat track boys trying to do teams for shooting with Richie and Jimmy. Mm. Um, so, we had a really good week together. Uh, it was funny, like just the way it worked out, they started going back to get bottles for us and they were supporting us just because I soon realized that January for them or in that season wasn't the most important thing where we think it's that we put it on a pedestal and think it's the best time of the year and yes, so we're flying. just trying to get extra k's in make yeah. the race harder riding riding to the race riding home from the race right. just doing all the extra stuff i think richie did 4k swim every morning before the stage oh my god like uh but yeah it was an amazing it was an amazing experience it opened a lot of doors and that sort of really kick-started the friendship i've got with richie now and and that led to me becoming an ineos mm. um uh, and since then, we speak a lot. I spent uh, all the summer last year down in Tassie and we're doing that famous Scottsdale loop mm. that he does. Uh, so, yeah, it really, that really kick-started that relationship for me and I probably wouldn't be where I was if it wasn't for Richie. Is that how things all started up within yours then? Like, how did that come about? Because you ended up stagiaring with them. But, you know, stagiaires, for anyone who doesn't know, they can be sometimes a bit of a, a trap. You know, sometimes a lot of riders think, oh, I've got a stagiaire, that means I'm going to turn pro. But... Actually, sometimes seems like, you know what, we just need to fill the roster up at the end of the year. Let's give this guy a bit of a bone. You know, if he comes out and wins three races, sure, we'll sign him. But most often, it's very difficult to turn pro from that. Tell me about your time as a stagiaire. Was that sort of, it can also be a situation where the deal's done and done, dusted. And they just want to give you a bit of experience, kit you up, get you to feel the team, get ready for next year. What scenario was yours? Was yours like a tester? Let's see what this guy's got. Or was yours like a warm up for the following year? Yeah, so I had signed for the for the following year uh and we started the stagia straight after the olympics cool so i flew from the game straight to well i actually went straight to lavenir first and broke my elbow stage one <laughs> um but yeah from lavenir uh it was yeah so i went to Girona. they helped me get settled they met me over there got me kitted up bikes coaches all the performance stuff so that was a really special special few weeks uh we then we went to actually road worlds and did the tt there and then from there, the stagiaire started. We did the Italian one-day block. Right. Uh, so it was only four races, but it was just a really good taste of it. Got to see the kitchen truck, which is the best part about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, got to meet a whole group of guys. I think we met 15 guys just in that one block because you had the Lombardia group who was a completely different group to everyone else that sort of fills the one-day program. But yeah, it was a really good taste of it. Got myself settled in Europe. So that next year when I flew over in February, it was just set up, ready to go. Mm. And there was no transition period. That's good, yeah, yeah, especially when the season kicks off. We'll rewind a little bit. How the whole thing come about? You said you, Richie sort of was, I guess, I, you didn't say this, but I'm assuming Richie was sort of speaking out for you from your performance at Down Under. I guess they had your, you know, your data on file. You were doing great things for you know, Australia on the track. How did it all sort of get pieced together that that opportunity came up? Uh, basically, straight after the final day at Wollonga, I think Richie sent a message to the team. Hmm. Uh, and that was all it really took. That kick-started all the chats. Uh, and from there, yeah, a contract came a couple months later after a few chats, but cool. he was pivotal. It probably wouldn't have happened without him, so he was really pivotal with that. And, yeah, straight after Wollonga, yeah, you're right. They asked for some numbers and some data, but they also could see firsthand what he was doing. Um, and, yeah, he was chatting to him. I think it was to Kero at the time, Tim Kerrison, who was his coach. And, yeah, that kick-started it, and six months later, I was in Europe with the stagiaire. Do you remember when you sort of got that conversation, that early conversations when it was like, hey, I'm actually speaking to the team for you or you got this email or whatever. You're like, oh my God, I could be going pro soon. Can you remember that feeling? I thought he was joking. He said straight after Wollonga, oh, I'll message the team. You're like, oh but yeah, I, I th- thanks look, mate. We, we rode back and probably had a beer like at the end of the stage. Like, I thought he was just joking. And then I think it was the next day my manager got a message. Wow. I was like, oh, he wasn't joking. 
And we all obviously went our separate ways that next day and he went back home to Tassie and I must have kept doing some track. But yeah, he kept his word, which I thought at the time was a joke. And it really evolved super quickly after that. I think I was lucky I didn't have enough time to think about it or panic because of the Olympics. That was the sole focus for all of us guys uh, for that whole year. So we almost just went straight back into track mode, not worrying about the road. What will happen will happen. And we were really lucky. Like Kel O'Brien was in the same situation as me and he'd sign a stagiaire for Jayco. So we you could just sort of talk to each other. Yeah, about it. we could talk about it together, work out where we're going to go from Tokyo. We both flew to Girona together. Cool. So it was just nice to have that person that we could both share it with, whether mm. we were panicking or stressing or yeah, whatever one of us learned, we could share it. And that really helped. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's talk about this first year because you hit the ground running here in Australia, national champ. What a way to start with your new team. The first race you do, okay, I know you did Sargier, but that doesn't really count. The first race you do, the Nationals. Like, of course you want to win the Nationals, but this extra added, like, to relieve any kind of pressure for the rest of the year, Nationals. What was, what, like, I know, like, National Champ, that's one thing too, but added into the first ride for the team. Like, tell me about that. It's got to, how did that feel? Yeah, it was a dream come true. I think, uh, it's a race I'm in love with now, but it's a race I sort of fell in love with watching Cam Meyer do it and think hearing his story about how many times he gave it a crack and then eventually he went back to back. Um, and I think being able to train with him and he was actually the reason I started wanting to ride a bike. I think it was 2012 Melbourne Track Worlds. Right. That was my first sort of like time going to a track event. And that was when he won the points race in the final lap against oh, Ben Swift. Oh, yeah, jeez. And that atmosphere, that was at High Sense Arena. Mm. Uh, and that atmosphere was what made me love it. And then since then, I followed Cam and followed him in the Madisons. And then, yeah, during Tokyo preparation, he was, that was when I could really spend some time with him. And he taught me about the road and the nationals. And I was really picking his brain. Yeah, to be able to make that happen, I was sort of a bit mind blown, but loved it. And yeah, since, since that, that day, I wanted to do it again the next year. And it, it is just my favorite race. What's the key then to go back to back? What did he tell you? You're going to let that secret out? <laughs> No, well, <laughs> he, was, he was, fortunately enough, I think he just had hand surgery about two weeks before, so he wasn't at his peak condition. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I was probably lucky there. You mean that he didn't go triple? He didn't do the hat trick, no. Oh, yeah, right. But, I mean, what, what was, what's the key to get two? Uh, patience. I think the year before when I was under, first, or second year under 23, I rode up in elites, and I think I attacked with about six laps to go, and my lights went out, and I fainted with a lap to go, and... <laughs> Yeah, the lights went out. So I think I learned patience very quickly that you uh, don't have the legs as a junior as you do in the elite field. So what was the team saying when you, you know, straight off the ranks, your national champ? Was it like a bit of elation or was it just sort of like pro style? Yeah, good on you, mate. Let's move on to the next race. I think it was just more move on to the mm. next race. I think that's sort of the way that Ineos go about it with nationals. They're like, well, yeah, that's great. That's but, great, but let's yeah. uh, win for the team and in Europe now. So it was sort of a straight back into it. And there wasn't, again, there wasn't TDU that year. So that was mm. a bit frustrating. Um, and then we went straight into UAE, which was a really good race. But again, they're like, let's wait till we get to Europe sort of thing. Well, let's talk about UAE because I think, again, you just, you just kept rolling on. You really were pinnacle to help uh, Adam Yates to second place there. Did an amazing job up the pinnacle climb. What's that climb called? Jabal Hafeet. There you go. And you were riding, like, I was watching it going, I didn't know Plappy could climb that well. You know, like it was, it was a great ride. And again, just to, un to help everyone understand, it, not only to have that good ride when you're second, third, fourth, fifth year pro, whatever, but your second race. It's really your first race with the team. You know, like one in Australia, you're just sort of essentially on your own with the Ineos kit on. 
But now you're in the big leagues, you're with the team, you've got Yatesy there, you've got a job to do, and you're nailing it. Did you sort of get a big head out of this? You're like, oh, this pro thing, I think I, this is going to be all right. Uh, sort of. I think it was, it was cool having Yates. I really got along with him and we had Burt Lancaster as the mm. DS. So that really settled me just having that Aussie connection. And I think that being the first race in Europe to have Burt there really helped. Yeah, UAE went great. And I, I probably thought, oh, this is all mm. right. I fit in quite well. Uh, also, not knowing that every race isn't 100 watts for four hours and then you just do a 20-minute test. But then quickly got to Catalonia about two weeks later. Uh, I got dropped on the first descent, piss and rain, uh, and then DNF the last day. And that was just the biggest reality check I've ever had and thought, you know what, I may as well go back to Australia and this sport's a bit hard. Yeah, it really it burst my bubble pretty quick. And I wanted to talk to you about this because I was speaking to Brett in preparation for this podcast and he was talking about Catalonia. And yeah, sure, it's a DNF on the, on the results. And anyone might have seen that back in Australia. They go, oh, yeah, Plappy, right, here we go. Now he's going to understand the real world. And you painted that picture. But actually, there's more to the story than everyone knows. You actually played a really pinnacle role there. Brett pulled you aside and said, hey, we need to get Carapaz from 10th or 9th, wherever he was, for the win. And we need to lay it on the line at a certain point in this stage, second last stage, I think it was. And you had the pinnacle job of just going, Brett, I think, said to you, what did he say? How many watts can you do for 20 minutes <laughs> and just go. go bottom of the top as fast as you can? Uh, I think we lost Richie and Quiato early that race. So we didn't have many riders left. We couldn't do much. So it was sort of, let's throw a Hail Mary. What's 9th to 15th? What's the difference? Yeah, there was a 25-minute climb at the very start of the stage. I think it was only about 130K stage and it was rolling after that. And Bert's just like, well, go as fast as you can. Carapaz is on the wheel. We did ergo warm-up. It was piss and rain. From the start, the climb was? Yeah, 5K in. Oh. Yeah, had bicarb, had everything. Treated it like a time trial. Oh, everyone was hating you in the yeah, peloton. hated me. I got death threats like halfway <laughs> up. Like, because at the top, I pulled over, stopped and yeah. got in the team car. And, like, I remember Ben O'Connor came past swearing at me and <laughs> the boys that knew me. But I think Carapaz worded up Sergio Hagita that day. I think he knew he probably couldn't do 90K solo. So he <laughs> might have got his companion to uh, come with him, but... Yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun day that uh, I didn't get to finish it, but we set it up and I think and Richard won the day and got second on GC. Well, tell me about that because like that's the point I want to make here is that the reality is it's not always, you know, the UAE stories, the, the nationals, you know, these glory moments. Sometimes it's just gritty and you've got to do the job. You're not going to finish every race and you've got to lay it on the line, even though you want to just go, oh, I'll do enough, but then I'll save a bit for myself to get through. In order to do your job, in order to get that respect within the team, within the peloton, as you want to keep moving up the ranks, have a long career, they need to know that you can do the job to the point. Like literally, like you said, fall over it after 20 minutes or whatever it was. I'm going to nail it. I need to do this. It's not about me at this moment. Were you understanding that? You're like, okay, well, but I want to finish my second race. I don't want everyone to see at home like DNS. It's going to like wreck my reputation. How did you handle that when he told you to do that? Uh, it was more... I could do something for the guys. Mm. I really struggled in the racing. It was my first time in the proper cold. Like I was freezing. Uh, first time up mountains. And just also racing like that four or five hour stages, which I'd never done before coming from the track. Even if I was in the Peloton with 30K to go, I couldn't do anything. I was hopeless. So it was that chance that I'm still fresh. I can actually give something and help. Like, yeah, I might be there at the end of a sprint day, but I really can't offer anything to the team. Mm. And this was the first moment where I was like, I can make a difference or help someone 
so yeah, I was I was really stoked to do it. It paid off, uh, and I think from that day, it was I got that appreciation for how good it is to help a teammate. Well, tell me about what you just spoke about then, because I think that jump from Australia or even you know racing in UAE, it's a bit of a false sort of mm. idea of what the real world's like. And Catalonia, not having raced it, but ridden around those roads and heard a lot of stories around there, it's very hectic. You're going along the coast and you know Tossa de Mar. I think that's a beautiful road to ride, but a hell of a road to race twisting turning up and down and being in the wrong position and understanding all that stuff and actually people forget that you get over these climbs maybe suffer over these climbs but they race down the descents all of a sudden you're like i didn't know about this no one told me about that going down descents like 100k an hour and you know just doing what everyone else is doing taking risks and all this stuff and then fighting into the bottom of climbs and then doing your 20 minute best on and on and on Tell me about this learning process and how you've gone about that and understanding the way the bunch moves and where you sit in it, especially in this early part and even through the last couple of years. Yeah, it was super scary. Like I hated it. Uh, it was raining, first descent, and they just started racing. Mm. And it was as scary as I've ever done. I think we don't have many descents here in Australia. Like you do your alpine ones, but you don't really go down them quick or in road races, we don't have descents like that. So I got a pretty quick reality check of, where I was at. Um, what was missing? I think just even technique and skill and knowing what to do and but then being able to do it with people around you. So like mentality as well, you think? Yeah, mentality, but also just skill-wise. Mm. I didn't think I knew everything that I should have. And I caught up or got in touch with a guy called Oscar Sainz, who's right. from Barcelona, but he's ex-downhill or mountain biker and works with the Swiss team. So he's worked with a few pro guys uh, in the past and he was renowned for being able to help you corner and descend. Um, cool. I got his name from Jimmy Whelan. Huh. So Jimmy got me onto him and he said he really helped him. So you, you identified this problem. And was it, it, not a problem, but a weak spot in no, your repertoire. I went oh, from it was. front bunch up the climb to last. Like I was in group five by the <laughs> yeah, bottom right. of the descent. Yeah, it was definitely like I was really struggling with it. And do you think it was just getting worse and worse because, you know, yeah, okay. Then you have a, in your own mind, you're like, oh, I can't descend. And then you, I know what it's like. You crash in a race. Next thing you know, you're like, I can't corner it all. Mm. So I'm assuming that's what was going on in your mind. Yeah, I just didn't have the confidence. But it was more so I didn't have the confidence because I didn't know the skills needed. Like you think you know how to descend, but I probably, Oscar taught me a lot. Like we started in the car park just with some cones and learning how quick the bike can break, where the bike tips over, like you corner until you fall just to find mm. out where that limit is. So that just taught me a lot doing that. And then you go out into the road, you're a bit better and... Then it was about finding the lines, finding your apex. And it was just things that you think you know, but really I didn't. And I made massive steps uh, just from those couple of sessions. Uh, and then you got to put it into training. The weather was better and it wasn't raining. So that definitely helped. But we're, we're sitting here at the track, Brunswick Velodrome. You grew up on the track and something I always preach, get down to the track, do some racing. You're going to get learn this bunch skill. You're going to learn, you know, good bike handling skills. I don't know. What, what, what happened? What was the missing thing? Yeah, it is interesting. I've always wondered that too. Like, I love Madisons. Don't mm. find them scary at all. Yeah, this one day in Catalonia or just descending in general. Yeah, I really struggled with it. But now I've put a lot of work into it and it's taken a long time. Mm. Um, but I am comfortable now. Like, I'm not going to get dropped. Uh, it's not, it's ne probably never going to be a strength, but it's not a weakness anymore. Mm. We're not going to see you winning San Remo on the Poggio descent. No, but it shouldn't lose me a race, hopefully. Or I won't be doing a Froomey in the Giro mm. or something like that. <laughs> But yeah, it was just something that I knew I had to address. And then if I didn't, it's, it would be my downfall and something that you're not going to be able to get over. Well, that's what I love about 
you and also that pro mentality and what makes a good pro for long years is that they identify those weaknesses and they do something about it. You know, it's not like keep training the strength. It's like, yeah, you could just go, oh, well, I just can't descend or whatever. I'm just going to focus on my time trolling. That's, I know I can control that. It's like, well, if I want to stay here, I need to actually be good at descending. Okay, I'm not going to win, like I said, well, what you said, the podgy or whatever, but I need to be able to stay in the bunch. I need to be able to save energy for that next climb. What a, was it you who identified that or you just is it something that you've done throughout your whole career, I guess, your short career, identified it or have you got mentors around you who go, you know, hey, this is what I'm feeling and they point you in the right direction? How are you going about these decisions? Yeah, a bit of both. I think I've been really lucky last year having Brett on the team. He really took me under his wing and, and helped me with that and uh, whether it was bunch positioning, descending, just getting settled in Girona or Andorra, uh, I was really lucky having him. He unfortunately left to come home, but this year I've had Zach Dempster, which has been uh, as key part of my career as I could have had. Uh, I really appreciate everything Zach's done for me. Um, and yeah, again, this year as my DS, he took me under his wing, but also he was the national team uh, DS for mm. Worlds. And we've just been able to really go through a journey together. Um, and I think he really gets it from country Victoria and sort of that track background as well as Brett did, but really understood where I was coming from and could relay that. So I guess the European coaching and staff mm. to understand my journey and where it will get to, I guess, I hope. So that, yeah, both Brett and Zach were really pivotal in that in seeing where I've come from and helping me get there because they had to go through it themselves. Well, like you said there, the journey and where it's going to go, I've got a couple of questions for you about that. This move to Green Edge, how did this sort of all come about? Like we spoke about, you know, in your state, they took the chance with you, but the Australian team, I guess, was that the, the pool, you know, because it was for me eventually when it, when it came up. To be able to work back, you spoke about the national team, something I loved, especially every year, the years I got a chance to ride the Worlds. There's something different about being back at the Worlds, being with your own countrymen. Even though you see them day to day in Girona or in the races, when you get together and race together, it's so different. Tell me about this decision to go you know, across the green edge. Yeah, it just felt like I was coming home in a way. It just felt the right thing to do. I think it's like you said, you've got that Australian pool. I think you find that extra little bit for your mates or for your fellow countrymen it, it just really felt like the right thing to do for me i've really loved being a part of it so far and, and yeah it was the opportunities that will arise with it i really was looking forward to that it might give me some more opportunities in grand tours hopefully uh which is where i sort of want to go down that path but yeah it, it just has felt right uh, and i haven't looked back since and i'm really looking forward to the next four years so four years wow that's great and gc you spoke about gc is that is that what i'm hearing yeah, that's the plan. Well, that's at least what I want to try and see where it can go. Uh, I'd really also love to be a part of leading Caleb out and being in that sort of environment. I really like that and enjoy it. But yeah, I, I'd like to sort of hopefully develop into GC or at least see where it can take me. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't. But I want to give that a crack. What about the TT? Always keep that there. I'd really like to do the TT at the games this year, hopefully. Um, so that'd be a really big target and, and always keep that there and be a part of that at World Championships and be a domestique for the boys at Worlds, whether it's for Bling or probably Caden now in the future. He's really coming up well. But yeah, so I just want to be a part of that Australian team and I love it. it. It makes me feel at home and I think it gets the most out of me too. What does it mean? Have you thought about this? What does it mean to be a GC rider? You know, like, let's think about it. Like, you've probably got to, I guess, get super lean and, you know, what about the mentality as well? Have you sort of thought about this? Has anyone sort of given you some advice and sort of said, yeah, I think you've got the makeup for it physically, mentally? Do you know that stuff yet? Uh, I think it's sort of exploring as it comes. I really, I'd regret it if I didn't give it a crack. Like speaking to Richie a lot about it uh, and those boys, like 
I've really tried to pick their brains. I think in Ineos, I had really good uh, role models in Geraint Thomas. Like I learned a lot from him. Spoke to Teo a lot. Teo mm-hmm. was really, really good for me over the years. Teo um, Gagan Hunt. Yeah. So those two guys I've really looked up to and try to, I guess, take traits from each of them and, and try to work that slowly into what I can do. So I think it's going to be a learning process and you've got to, my first Volta was the hardest thing I've ever done. I was in Gruppetto most days. So that definitely, I definitely left that thinking I, I can't do GC. Well, what we'll changed then? 12 months has passed and I forgot about <laughs> oh. how hard it was. <laughs> well, um, I'd almost argue sometimes you, it, it takes only a few days. It's so ridiculous. You're like, exactly you said, you're in Gruppetto, you're barely going to make it. You hate this thing. Give it two days. You're like, I wouldn't mind doing the Volta next year. Yeah. <laughs> now you want to be GC. Yeah. You're mad. Yeah, it's changed. Well, I remember, I think it was January last year or this year when we were setting out the program. I was like, no, nah, no Grand Tour. It was still in my mind. I was like, that hurt too much. I'm not ready for that. And then we got to mid-year and I was like, oh, is the Volta possible? <laughs> really wanted to do it again. So yeah, you do forget it pretty quickly. Uh, and yeah, I think just the way I'm slowly developing, I think I want to give the climbs and the TT a crack. I do love the TT and I think that's such a pivotal part in GC mm. riding. Um, and yeah, like I said, I sort of look at Wigo and G and those guys and I th- sort of want to hope I can come from the track like they have and slowly work into that sort of GC time trial. It's a bit like Dumoulin as well. Hopefully one day just get half as good as them and it'd be amazing. Well, lastly, mate, let's talk about quickly Wondiligong, where you're, you know, you've bought some land up there and that suits the GC. You're right in the, you know, the Victorian Alpine. It's maybe not like Europe, but there's enough climbing up there. Tell me a little bit about why you've ended up there because it's, I know it was a, well, I've heard that it was a passion for you to go up there and just spend so much time Mm. up there as you worked your way up, not being from up there you know, bright in this area. Why'd you end up in Wondiligong of all places? A beautiful spot, by the way. Great, God's, great God's country, mate. Yeah, uh, it is God's country. It's my favorite place in the world, up in the high country. I absolutely love it. Uh, I just, I don't think there's anywhere like it in the world that offers what uh, that area does, whether it's summer, autumn, winter, spring. You can go to 45 degrees in the summer to going on the slopes and snowboarding in the winter where and only two hours over the mountains, the beach. Like, I just think it's, mm. it's such an amazing place. I love it. I spend every second of the day I can up there. Yeah, and Wandi was where I ended up. I've been looking for ages for a, whether it was a house, a block. I wasn't sure. I just knew I wanted to be a part of the high country um, and always fell in love with the Wandi pub especially. I think yeah. it's got a lot of character and a, a really cool valley. I think it doesn't get the tourists that come on, whether it's Melbourne Cup weekend or Grand Final weekend where Bright does. I just love that Wandi's got its own little... Yeah, it's just its own valley uh, and it just so happened to be that a, a nice six acre block with a creek and the river as the back boundary popped up and it just, I fell in love with it as soon as I saw it and yeah, I'm just in a swag now, spending time there and riding while I'm there and yeah, I love it. It's, it's what makes me happy and I think if, if you're happy, you train better, you're a better person and yeah, I love every day I spend up there. You know, build the Plappy Palace up there, mate? That's the plan. I've started like brainstorming and got ideas at the moment it's a tiny home while well, i can afford to <laughs> to build a house but yeah i'd love to be able to live up there one day and yeah i just love the community and the locals that are there there's a awesome sort of group of riding we have a bunch ride every day in the morning last year Froomey came out for a bunch ride oh. uh, i reckon there was 200 people from as far as mount buller to really uh, it was massive uh, <laughs> every man and his dog who haven't rode for three years came out to see Froomey. It what was you amazing. saying, the Harrietville race or whatever you call yeah, it? Yeah, the hammer. The, the hammer. hammer. So it's the famous bunchy every Thursday morning. So you tap out and you roll turns just talking shit to everyone. Everyone just wanted to talk to Froomey last year. Uh, and then you get to Harrietville and half the bunch will turn, and, which is B grade, and then A grade wait a couple minutes and then they turn. 
It's and like a it's, handicap. It's a chop off as hard as you can go. And it is the best fun you can ever have. Did you drop through me? No, he was flying that day. He oh. was on a real good one. We actually got the con, which I think will go untouchable forever. Oh. Um, but no, I really love it up there. The locals are amazing. You can get a hand whenever you need. And yeah, like I said, you've got the Bright Brewery or the best roads to train on in the world. Awesome, mate. What did I tell you? He is such a likable guy. I love his enthusiasm to keep improving, to set new goals that are scary for him. Also to work on his weaknesses. He's not afraid to explore that area. Big thanks goes out to our major partner, Matt. Really enjoying working with those guys in the podcast, but also on the bike and different things around that we're doing adventures and stuff as well. The Life in the Peloton team behind the scenes, really cool. Bringing you guys all these great podcasts we've got this year and everything else that you've seen around the scenes. I mentioned it last week. This is really exciting. The Pelo, the Life in the Peloton membership. If you're not a member, you got to get over there and sign up because we dropped our first episode last week making it. The series that I'm doing with Swain Tough, this is no ads, free speech, long format podcast. We've had great feedback from the first episode. Get across and check that out. The Life in the Peloton membership, The Pello. Sign up for the Echelon or the Doom line, depending what suits you. Heaps of other stuff involved with that. So go across, check that out as well, guys. Until next week, guys, we've got a talking loof coming for you. I hope you enjoyed that episode and I'll see you across in the Echelon. That iconic music in this episode was composed by none other than the legend, Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.